so for some, for some of you, a discussion about the Buddha's Eightfold Path will be review. You'll be hearing uh, about many aspects of the Buddhist path of training that you've heard about before and read about, that you're already practicing in your own life. And I think uh, for some of you it'll be it'll be new and, and, and will help you round out your understanding of the path. We obviously spend so much time focused on meditation practice and when we come to uh, a community setting like this, we, uh, we do a lot of practice together. We do a lot of formal meditation practice together. Uh, in many ways, tonight's talk is really an intention to remind us that that's one part of a threefold practice, and that's really where the interest in, in talking about the Eightfold Path comes from. <coughs> the way I think about the Eightfold Path is that it gives us many examples of ways that we can cultivate our mind. It gives us many ways of understanding uh, also the fruit or benefit of practice. And in, in, in a sense, taken as a whole, the Eightfold Path gives us a well-rounded um, approach to cultivate Kind of a, a very full uh, spiritual aptitude, if you if you will, uh, that really uh, leaves it leaves no part of our life out. You'll see that I think as I go through the list that this teaching is strongly suggestive of the possibility that this idea of practice can extend across all domains of our life. And in fact, I think it says, shouldn't be limited to meditation. <clears throat> so my hope is that it really opens up the container of practice and, and, and makes it a much, much bigger container. Uh, or maybe uh, there are multiple containers. Maybe it, maybe it feels more like, more like that. So, to put the Eightfold Path in context, the, one of the core, uh, if not the central teaching that the Buddha gave us is the Four Noble Truths. And the Buddha said the dukkha, or distress, or suffering, or dis-ease, is a natural part of life. That's the first Noble Truth. Um, the second Noble Truth, that there's a reason or a cause for... Uh, this dukkha, this uh, unsatis, this inherent unsatisfactoriness of life that uh, we all experience, and the third noble truth uh, is cessation, the possibility of alleviation of dukkha. So this is a the good news that while dukkha is part of the fabric of being a human being, something can be done about it. 
Uh, and the fourth noble truth is the path or the way to the alleviation of dukkha. And that path is the noble eightfold path. Okay. So uh, <clears throat> these aren't really in order, though they tend to show up list-like uh, often in the same order. Not, not always, but often. And it's fine to think about them like that as I, you know, because there's something linear about giving a talk, so you're going to hear them in order. Um, <clears throat> so feel free to think about them as a, as a list, but also you might imagine them on a wheel, on a circle, where no one of them is more important to the other as you cultivate any one area of your life, of your practice, it's going to inform all of the other pieces. So if you imagine them on a wheel um, and there are lines between them, like spokes, they're all connected. Okay. The uh, first uh, path factor of the Noble Eightfold Path is right understanding or right view. So Right at the beginning here, I want to say something about the word right, and many of you have heard me translate this before. Right has something to do with harmony or creating harmonious uh, environments between ourselves and others. So if something is right, it is in accord with the law of Dharma. It is imbued with an understanding of what would be skillful or appropriate. So that's, it's not, it's not that the Buddha had a right way of doing things and that way shows up on this list, but rather what is right would be indicated by an action that reduces suffering or increases well-being. And that's how we can evaluate what is right. So I can't actually list ten things that are right view or right understanding or right livelihood. It's not... There are some lists within this teaching, but mostly I think it's more useful to understand the meaning of right so that it becomes personal and when we engage the practice in our lives, we're investigating how it is that we create or disrupt uh, harmony in our, in our own lives, right? And remember, the gauge for harmony, to some extent, is how much well-being is there, or how much suffering is there, how much anxiety, how much anger, how much kindness. So right understanding or right view is an understanding of things as they are. So that can be uh, ambiguous at, at, at best. Um, this right view, we could say, is the opposite of delusion, right? Uh, this right view has much less confusion in it, maybe even no confusion, much less confusion than any mind state that causes suffering, okay? So ultimately, this right view really understands the Four Noble Truths. It really understands 
suffering, the cause of suffering, really understands the value of the Noble Eightfold Path as a vehicle for alleviating this dukkha. Now, my view is that everybody has right view. My, my bias is that everybody has right view. And what I mean by that is most of us, most people who are drawn toward this path, have some awareness of dukkha. And, which is the first noble truth, you, you've, you've come to terms with some level of suffering. And you're hopeful that there's an alternative. Right? You're hopeful that the possibility of cessation, as regardless of you've, if, whether you've ever heard of the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path, or you've ever even thought of cessation in the, in the, in the way that I'm talking about it, some part of you is longing for an alternative. And so there's some view that is in alignment with the Buddhist methodology that has at least enough curiosity, even if it's a little bit, to put you in the room to practice some meditation or to encourage you to buy a book about meditation, the Dharma, the Buddhist life, whatever it is. So there's, there's a little bit of right view uh, playing into your own curiosity and interest in checking the Dharma out, actually. Now, that's a kind of, if you will, relative right view. As the path matures over the years of practice, uh, the distinct insights that you have about your life and the ways that you keep suffering intact or fail to... uh, accomplish a greater level of well-being, the reasons why become more and more clear. You have a, we have a more attuned relationship to the, to the Four Noble Truths, right? And so this right view is getting more clear. So in a sense, right view is the beginning of the path. It gets us there, but it's also the culmination. So we, 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 go, we have experiences, and right view is stronger. We have more experiences, right view gets stronger. We have more experiences, right view gets stronger. And in really simple terms, right view includes a deepening or, a, or, a, or a, an increasingly mature understanding that <coughs> all actions have consequences. All actions have consequences. And because you know that, you have a new level of investment in your own behavior. And yet without awareness, you don't have that much control over your behavior. Without renunciation, you don't have that much control. And so the, 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 the practice the reasons why you practice are vitalized by your own growing understanding. It actually makes more sense to practice the more you know. Right? And the view, this right view, <coughs> this view that leads to greater harmony is getting strengthened. So 
so the, the, the Buddha is essentially saying we need right view. Right? And so how do we do that? And then really the rest of the list is how to do that. So in one of the ways you can think about this. The second path factor is right thought. <clears throat> I think the basic principle is that renunciation supports the path overall. So there are certain things that we need to let go of. Now, ultimately, we need to let go of tanha, which is the second noble truth. This, this craving, this, this uh, persistent, often more often than not, unconscious uh, volitional force that is making it so difficult to be in the present moment. So when you're sitting and practicing and, and you're trying to just relax, how many people came to me? I just want to relax. I just want to feel calm and quiet. I want the body to be really peaceful. And the mind is bouncing around and you're replaying events from the past and you know, your shoulders hurt and the knees hurt and there's resistance to that. and All of this normal... Uh, all these normal occurrences on the meditation cushion, on the chair, um, are both the result of and condition more tanha. There's a way in which we want something other than what we're having, or if what we're experiencing is really unpleasant, we're pushing it away. These are two ways of thinking about tanha or craving. Okay. And, and however it plays out, it's really a rejection of the present moment. It's very, very hard to stay right here now, whether the experience is pleasant or unpleasant. We, we can feel this. We can learn to really attune to this almost impossible to stop inner movement. This, there's a, there's there's some kind of, call it inertia. Something is, is moving us away from the present moment. Can you feel it in the practice? It's just, and, and when the mind really settles and quiets and, and you get this moment of relief, it's, it's, oh, that tanha is gone. Just, you know, and it's usually just a moment. <laughs> and that helps us understand, you know, we can, from its absence, we can understand it. So right thought includes a focus on renouncing, if you will, an overindulgence or over-obsession of the self. If we really pay attention to the mind, um, the kinds of thoughts, the strategies that we're concocting in, in all of our time of thinking and planning, it's really all about me. It's really all about me. And so, I mean, there's a way in which coming to sit and meditate and investing this kind of time and energy, that's about you too. But, but that would be, the, the Buddha would say, that's a really good desire. To wake up and be free from suffering, that's a good desire. That is about you. I'm talking about more on the mundane level. Really look at the mind. You 
are thinking about you and how you can get what you want as fast as you can and get rid of what you don't want as fast as you can. That's basically all that's happening in the mind. And so at this level of practice, we become interested in turning our mind toward virtuous qualities like kindness and compassion and generosity. We, ch- we, we, we start to challenge the value of so much self-absorbed thought and effort and action, right? There's a question that's raised about the usefulness of that. Now, of course, all of that behavior that's happening, even if it's just thinking, is really intended to find happiness. That's really what we're doing. All of that self-obsessed thought is seeking happiness. So really, we could say that we're, we're turning our attention that we're, we're turning our attention toward happiness in a, in a new or different way. But we're still turning our attention toward happiness. That's appropriate. The Buddha would say that's appropriate. Ultimately, right thought leads to a clear understanding of what in the Buddhist tradition is often referred to as the three marks or the three characteristics. The th- three distinct phenomena that we can understand about being a human being. Again, dukkha shows up as the first mark that we really build an intimate, clear relationship with the reality of suffering in our life. Um, We see this self that I was just talking about. We see the way this self is a part of and conditioning the perpetuation of dukkha and that this is happening largely due to a failure to recognize and honor impermanence. The simple truth that everything is always changing. And one of the things that we learn through practice is when we really take hold of that insight of impermanence and relax our grip on life, something changes. Life, life gets a little bit easier. Even if life is really hard and we're in one of those stages when we feel like there's a lot going against us, uh, the willingness to not impose upon life a particular timeline, for example, um, our willingness to be more curious and open to unpleasant experiences, for example, our Willingness to engage interpersonal, uh, pers- uh, interpersonal conflict uh, from the perspective of maybe I have a role in this. All of that starts to change something, right? It's a, it's a different kind of participation with our life. Right understanding and right thought are considered to be the home of the development of wisdom, which is panya in Pali. So as much as as this talk is going through the eight path factors, it's to point out primarily that those eight path factors are divided into the development of panya or wisdom, the development of sila or ethical conduct, in the development of samadhi 
or meditation. So in the, in the domain of sila, or ethical conduct, or if you will, the development of virtue or virtuous habits, mind states, behaviors, we have first right speech. So basically the Buddha was saying that we can cause so much harm through speech that we need to give it its own place. It needs its own line item <laughs> in the Eightfold Path. Yep. On the Eightfold Path spreadsheet, <laughs> right speech uh, gets its own line item. It's that important. And, you know, I can give a, a talk at some point, and I'll, I'll do this for you. I'll give a talk on right speech and you know, what did the Buddha say to do and not do? And he, this, is, this is one of the places where there is a list. And that list itself can become a, pra- a daily practice. Uh, but for now, I just want to point out that in, in the Buddha's estimation, the way we use speech is so critical to our own well-being that it needs to be highlighted as a distinct practice. Right action, right action, right action emphasizes all habits, again, that create harmony. So, you know, the cla- like this is where you can think of the precepts, like if you've ever been on retreat and you've taken the precepts, uh, and there's so much overlap with other spiritual traditions, not killing, not taking what is not offered, not causing harm through sexuality, not causing harm through intoxicants. So this teaching, right action plus right speech, is the five precepts. Which if you come on retreat with against the stream, you'll you know you'll you'll explore these as part of your daily practice. We will recite them together in the morning. Now, really actually any Theravada center that I've ever been to, any insight center, this would be part of that practice. So, and of course the the eightfold path is really saying make that a practice period every day. Don't wait for don't <coughs> don't wait for retreat. And then the third component that comprise the the sila or ethical conduct domain <coughs> is right livelihood. And and right livelihood advocates really for a certain degree of simplicity. Now in our, in, our, in our life, in the way our life is set up. And of course, if we go way back, we have this classic archetype of the monastic who didn't have very much. And we're not saying, you know, throw everything out and put your kitchen sink uh, out on the sidewalk on heavy trash pickup and, you know, wash yourself with a, with a cup of water. But examine the nature of greed and how that plays out in your life, in the degree to which you think you need certain things to be in place to be deeply happy, and, and, and beyond that, be clear about how what you seek in your life and the way you seek it causes suffering for yourself or other people. The Buddha was saying, let's get clear about what we really need. 
let's get clear about what we really need, have it to the degree that we can take care of our basic needs, um, but in more contemporary language, be really careful for materialism. Be really careful for how subtle the acquisition of status can be and how that compensates for some empty place within ourselves that, according to this tradition, really is only satisfied through the deep contentment of understanding one's mind, of being able to fulfill the desire for freedom, for peace, for equanimity within the mind and body. So he's saying, let's not be confused about that. There is some discussion in the suttas about uh, vocation, about the way we choose to live our life. And the emphasis around those teachings is, uh, is around finding a means of working in the world that causes little harm as possible. Right? What I like to add this list to this list is finding ways of being in relationship to your life and your work that are meaningful because they match your values. This is one way that people find uh, that the mind and heart can relax. It's one of the ways that people find that happiness and joy and gratitude can come forward naturally. It's because there's there's good alignment. It's hard to, to, to link this with an explicit Buddhist teaching. It's, it's, it has a little bit more of a, of a, of a yogic flavor than a, than a Buddha Dharma flavor, but you've heard me talk about this. I think it's really true. Now, of course, we can't always have that alignment. Uh, <clears throat> but there's also the alignment of values and principles. Just living, you know, like if, if kindness is a distinct value, are you really cultivating that within yourself? If you want that in the world, if you want compassion in the world, uh, to what degree are you spending time, energy, maybe even money? I don't know what that would look like, but maybe. Maybe money, you go to a meditation retreat. Are you doing the things that you need to do so that your values, the principles that you want to be integral to your life, are you doing what you need to put them in place? So that's, that's the idea. Even hobbies, right? Of course, the place from which these teachings came from didn't leave a lot of room for discussing hobbies because everything was stripped away from the monastic's life. You know, you served, you served others directly or you meditated, or you studied. They weren't hobbies. They weren't even allowed. Um, but we have a lot of interests in the modern world, and so we can use this teaching to look at all of the things we do and uh, become clear, become honest with ourselves about the de- degree to which they are good for us. Right. So... This whole category of sila emphasizes the development of upayas, skillful means, generosity, 
kindness and compassion. These teachings are looking at how we relate to our mind, of course, and how we relate to others, how we relate to our relationships, our work, our community, etc. It's said that the Buddha gave his teachings for the good of many, for the good of many, uh, for the happiness of many, uh, out of compassion for the whole world. So while we come and we sit and we have this very solitary experience and we become, we become intimate with our own unique habits and conditioning, uh, the point is, yes, to be free. Yes, to be psychologically free, which means to be with less dukkha, with more contentment. Uh, but to take that level of well-being, which of course requires less self-focus, once, once well-being starts to be robust, we find that we don't have to be so self-focused anymore. There's a kind of energy conservation when one's inherent well-being starts to take over. It's almost like there's almost time and space to, to think, of, okay, well now what can I do for you, you, and you? You know, we don't, um, suffering tricks us into thinking we can only look at our own situation to try to get, to try to take care of me, to try to make me feel better. But when me feels good, then we can, we can start to look outside a little bit. And so this teaching says, actually, do that right at the beginning and do your meditation practice, see your psychotherapist, eat well. All of the things, any of the things that you do as part of your self-care and as part of that. See, there's no separation in this tradition. As part of that, examining all of the ways that we meet and relate to others in our life and and, and see directly how that impacts your own well-being. And then... we have a contract. <laughs> and then, so, so, so the last category, remember the, the Eightfold Path is broken up into these three categories. So we started with Panya Wisdom, the development of understanding. Okay. That, by the way, includes study. We have Sila, um, living in alignment with healthy, wholesome, healthy, helpful virtues. And then we have samadhi. We have the development of meditation, which, of course, everybody knows so well. And we have right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Right effort can be understood as guarding the mind. And this is another teaching where there's a distinct list that I'll go over with you some night. Basically, what that list amounts to is developing a kind of effort that keeps at bay the hindrances and unhelpful, unskillful mind states. They're keeping at bay anger, frustration, greed, and cultivating mind states such as generosity, kindness, compassion, equanimity. So we develop a particular set of skills that allow us to do that. Okay? Right mindfulness, the continuous... (coughs) Mindfulness of bodily sensations, feelings, and mental states. The continuity. Really becoming invested 
in this as a way of living. So you can watch this in your own life and see how the continuity of mindfulness is, for example, often restricted to the time after the bell rings to right before the bell rings mm-hmm. on Thursday nights. Mm-hmm. And that's not really what the Buddha was talking about. This is intended to be a heightened time of intensive practice uh, that involves teacher instruction in Sangha. So you have the three jewels, the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha all coming together in these community sittings and on retreat. But what happens here will be positively impacted by the degree to which you are taking seriously mindfulness practice in everything you do. And you can do that. You can tune into the birds, the sound of birds walking down the street. You can feel your feet on the pavement. You can really pay attention to the hand as it touches the doorknob to turn and then pull the door open. You can really cultivate this quality of mind all the time. And you can learn to do it in a way that doesn't feel intense or overbearing, but can just have a natural, relaxed quality to it. Because actually, the intensely striving will be, it's not sustainable. So it, it is about learning how to relax into the natural, open, awareness, connecting in with the present moment very organically. And then the last path factor is right concentration. Of course, concentration and mindfulness work together. Concentration is emphasizing the stability of mind, which leads to uh, calm and, and tranquility. So concentration leads to calm and tranquility. Mindfulness leads to insight, understanding. It, it, it results in knowing something about one's own mind. So again, we can talk about any one of these path factors in greater detail. What I want to emphasize tonight, again, and I said this at the beginning, but there are three modes or there are three vehicles for practice. The development of samadhi, the development of sila, and the development of wisdom. And so, and you don't, I mean, you can answer it out loud if if you want. We'll transition in a couple minutes to a discussion. But one of the questions I want to offer you to to go home with is where your practice is heavy and where it is light. Where it is heavy and where it is light. Is there an area that you can focus on a little bit more that will offer a little bit of diversity and freshen your practice? You know, can you... Can you round it out? Um, and there should be a balance. You know, the, the Buddha talked about a middle way, right? You've heard, you've heard these teachings, the middle way between extremes. So we have to find our own relationship to the precepts, to virtuous behavior. We have to find our own relationship to meditation practice. Um, you know, for example, uh, tonight is a good night to say if you come regularly on Thursday night and you've developed the 
the, the discipline and the schedule to allow for that, now's a good time to consider meditating one or two days a week at home to, to begin to develop that home practice. Right? If you've heard a little bit about sila, but never really comprehended it as a distinct practice in the way that you understand meditation to be a practice, there's an opportunity to read a little bit about sila or talk to a teacher or really investigate how can this become a practice? You know? If you rely exclusively on your meditation but don't hear a lot of Dharma talks or don't have any Dharma books, order a Dharma book this week. That facilitates the wisdom component, right? It doesn't in and of itself lead to liberating insight, but hearing the Dharma, reading the Dharma, doing a little bit, and, and you know, throw the word study out. That that's that's fine. And we're we're not talking about becoming a bookworm, but just get a book you're interested in, throw it on the coffee table, and every couple of days, read a few pages, or, you know, swap out, you know, the Buddha's talking about what activities are useful and what are not. Swap out some evening activity. Many of us have evening activities that are, in and of themselves, not necessarily a problem, but if they're an every evening activity, uh, they might be using up really valuable time. Right? Some of the students that I mentor, most of them have very strong daily practices. And for example, some of them are working on taking like one or two nights a week and doing 20 minutes less TV watching, 20 minutes less Facebook, and doing two extra periods of 20 minutes of meditation. So that's an example of flushing out the, the path. Those are, those are some examples of, of flushing out the path. So is this um, is this new to you? The Eightfold Path is uh, yeah. A couple people are saying yeah. 